Welcome to Skim This. President Biden is kind of playing Santa this year because he's writing up his naughty list and, spoiler, it's long. First, he stood up to Russia's President Vladimir Putin. Well, actually, he sat down because it was a Zoom call. But it's safe to say that conversation wasn't about spreading holiday cheer. Thousands of Russian troops are mobilized on the border with Ukraine. U.S. intelligence officials believe Russia is planning a swift military offensive. Biden also had to tell China they were getting a lump of coal because the U.S. government is planning to RSVP no to the Winter Olympics. And then later in our show... I think we've taken abortion access for granted for most of our lives. A week after the Supreme Court heard the most consequential abortion case in years, we're still trying to understand the future of abortion rights in this country and how having or not having access to abortion care is a huge deal for our health and our finances. We're here to make you smarter and the news less overwhelming. I'm Alex Carr. Let's skim this. On Tuesday, President Biden and Russian President Vladimir Putin had a pretty awkward video call. For Putin, this meeting could have been an email, but it still had to happen. That's because Putin has started to send tens of thousands of troops to the Russia-Ukraine border. And according to U.S. intelligence, Russia will soon be able to amass almost 200,000 troops at the border, putting Russia in a strong position to fully invade Ukraine as early as next year. If you're wondering why is Ukraine always at the center of U.S.-Russia drama, let's do a quick timeline to break it down. Ukraine used to be a part of the Soviet Union, and it didn't become independent until 1991. But it didn't win freedom from having to worry about Russia. Fast forward to 2014, and Ukrainian people revolted and got rid of their Putin-backed president, further aligning themselves with the West. In response, Putin flexed Russia's military muscles and annexed a part of Ukraine called Crimea. Now, Putin's raising the stakes again, which could lead to an all-out war. So how exactly was a video call supposed to bring down the temperature here? Because it really didn't. And even though we don't know whether Putin actually plans to invade Ukraine, it's pretty crazy that he was even able to get to this point in the first place which has some people questioning whether the U.S.'s power on the global stage is waning and what leverage the U.S. actually has when it comes to stopping international conflicts. In this case, Biden's mostly threatening to hurt Russia's economy through economic sanctions and stopping an oil pipeline connecting Russia and Europe. Still, it's unclear whether any of those threats will actually be enough to deter Russia's leader, who blames the entire situation at the Ukrainian border on the West to begin with. For now, we know Putin will continue to push boundaries on the international stage. And his increasing aggression at the Ukrainian border is, at best, him showing how effective he is at stirring the pot, and at worst, could cause actual violence, where the fate of the Ukrainian people lies in the balance. Speaking of diplomatic tension, the Winter Olympics are coming up. And even though the Tokyo Summer Olympics feel like they just happened, because, well, they did, athletes are gearing up to head to Beijing this February. While we're looking forward to watching skiing, curling, and figure skating, one person is a lot less excited. Well, the Biden administration today announced a diplomatic boycott of the Beijing Winter Olympics that are set to begin less than two months from now. Okay, kind of awkward, right? Especially since the U.S. has been trying to de-escalate its drama with China lately, 
And RSVPing no to an event hosted by your frenemy doesn't exactly scream, we're doing great. So why are the Winter Olympics causing a lot of drama? We'll explain what's going on in 60 seconds. The Biden administration announced this week that no diplomatic or government officials from the U.S. would be attending the Winter Olympics in February because of China's ongoing genocide and crimes against humanity in the country's Xinjiang region. Quick reminder, those crimes include mass detention of more than a million Uyghurs, a Muslim minority group, and other ethnic minorities. There have also been reports that Uyghurs have been kept in forced labor camps and that women have been sterilized. If you're thinking, does this boycott mean U.S. athletes are not going to compete? Don't worry, they'll still be going for the gold. But government officials like Biden and the First Lady will be skipping the games. It turns out this isn't the first time the U.S. has boycotted the Olympics. Back in 1980, literally in the middle of the Cold War, the U.S. said we're out of the Moscow Olympics and pulled its athletes. As for the fallout from this boycott, sports broadcasters and event sponsors could be put in an awkward spot. And the U.S.'s allies seem to be following suit with their own boycotts, with Canada, the U.K. and Australia also announcing their government reps won't be in attendance. As for China, the Olympics are a chance to show off on the global stage, so officials there seem pretty upset. A spokesperson called the U.S.'s boycott an outright political provocation and promised resolute countermeasures. Because empty VIP seats when they're hosting the big event might not be the look they're going for. How'd we do? Want us to skim a question from the news? Send us your suggestions to audio at theskim.com. All right, let's get to some other headlines from the week's news and give you some context on why they matter. First up... The complaint we filed today alleges that Texas has violated Section 2 by creating redistricting plans that deny or abridge the rights of Latino and Black voters to vote on account of their race, color, or membership in a language minority group. Here's the context. In October, the Texas House approved a redistricting plan. Quick reminder, redistricting is the process of drawing a new political map of which representatives represent which people. And Texas's new plan is having one pretty obvious effect, reducing the number of districts with Black and Hispanic majorities. That's turning heads, because the population of Texas has grown by 4 million people over the last decade, and almost all of those new residents are minorities. And instead of giving those new voters more say in Texas politics, their influence could actually decline. But this week, the Department of Justice said not on our watch and sued Texas, claiming that the new congressional maps violate the Voting Rights Act because the plan didn't give minority voters, quote, an equal opportunity to participate in the democratic process and elect representatives of their choosing. According to The New York Times, this lawsuit could set a precedent and allow other states to change how they redistrict. Texas is one of nine states with a history of voter discrimination, and those nine states had to get the DOJ's approval on their redistricted maps until 2013, when the Supreme Court said no need for that anymore. So it's safe to say those eight other states will be watching the legal fallout from Texas very closely. Next up, they might be making a lot of jokes on TikTok, but the kids are not all right. At least according to the U.S. Surgeon General. We've had rates of suicide increase among our children. And for many kids during the pandemic, feelings of anxiety and depression worsen and loneliness as well. Here's what you need to know. 
Dr. Vivek Murthy issued a 53-page report earlier this week detailing the effects of the COVID-19 pandemic on our mental health. Between all the deaths caused by COVID-19, the U.S.'s recent racial justice reckoning, climate change, a recession, and crazy polarized politics, we get how that's a lot to process. And one group in particular is taking this especially hard, Gen Z. During lockdown, Gen Zers missed formative experiences, from regular socializing to homecomings, proms, and graduations. Imagine being told all your high school events would be held on Zoom, even the ones you were kind of dreading. Prom. Dancing. Not such a good idea for me. <laughs> and Dr. Murthy says social media hasn't helped either because it increases feelings of isolation and encourages users to compare their lives to other people's. As a result of all of this, youth depression and anxiety are now scary high. According to the report, one in four young people experienced depressive symptoms, and one in five had symptoms of anxiety. Emergency room visits for suicide attempts also rose by more than 50% for teenage girls. And while some of these trends predate the pandemic, Dr. Murthy says COVID's definitely made things worse, and that the country needs to address youth mental health before that becomes a public crisis too. And our final headline this week. Four times Angela Merkel led her party into a general election. Four times she won that election. Now, Germany's Chancellor Angela Merkel is stepping down. She's been planning her exit for a while, announcing way back in 2018 that she wouldn't run again for chancellor. But this week marked the end of an era. Merkel, who took over Germany 16 years ago when George W. Bush was in the White House, officially passed the baton. Her replacement, Olaf Scholz, has his work cut out for him. Germany's facing international criticism for its partnership with Russia on an oil pipeline. And within Germany, there's a housing crisis and the worst COVID-19 spike the country's seen so far. While Merkel will hopefully be taking a well-deserved vacation. Auf Wiedersehen! Last week, the Supreme Court heard one of the most consequential abortion cases in decades. And based on how those arguments went, a lot of legal analysts now believe Roe v. Wade might be scaled back or overturned, threatening a person's right to an abortion. Overturning Roe wouldn't make abortion illegal nationwide, but it would allow states to outlaw abortion completely. That would likely happen in at least 26 states and would affect people primarily in the South and Midwest. Experts also say a ban will disproportionately affect low-income women. For a lot of us, last week was a turning point in how we've thought about our health care, our own access to abortion, and our privilege. When I started studying abortion policy, it was only 15 years ago. And the general reaction was, you know, that's fine, but... There's no world in which abortion access is going away. That's Caitlin Myers, an economics professor at Middlebury College in Vermont. I think women of my generation, I'm in my early 40s, I think women who are younger than me, I think women who are even like 10 years older than me, I think we've taken abortion access for granted for most of our lives. And what I would say right now is that we have reached a watershed moment in which it appears that that could change. And women should recognize that this does have impacts on their lives, on their ability to make decisions, control their fertility, and participate in the economy. 
So today, we want to talk about what having access to abortion means for women, for their health, and for their financial well-being. We'll hear more from Myers in a bit, but first, let's start with health. To help, we've called up Dr. Marta Perez. She's an OBGYN and an assistant professor at the Washington University School of Medicine in Missouri. Dr. Perez told us while a lot of people were shocked to hear the Supreme Court would seriously consider overturning Roe, she and her patients had been talking about challenges to abortion access for a long time. People like me who have been OBGYNs in states where abortion is already extremely difficult to access, if not impossible and out of the question for many patients, have been trying to sound the alarm and talk about this for a decade or more. It's estimated that nearly one in four women will undergo an abortion in their lifetime for all sorts of reasons besides just unintended pregnancy. And a lot of women who intended to get pregnant also seek abortions because of medical conditions that make it dangerous to carry a fetus to term. But besides potentially life-threatening pregnancies, according to Dr. Perez, going through any pregnancy can be a big deal for your health. So when Supreme Court justices like Amy Coney Barrett suggest that adoption could be a viable alternative to receiving an abortion, Dr. Perez says that's not true. Pregnancy carries many risks. It is sort of what we like to call a stress test on the pregnant person's body. It has a lot of demands on many different organ systems and can sometimes unlayer or reveal underlying health issues that may have not been there before. At the same time, the actual process of pregnancy and giving birth can cause blood loss. It can cause many complications. Giving birth and carrying a pregnancy is not something that is simple, straightforward, and just a isolated nine-month event in someone's life that leaves them the same as they were before. It's completely a life-changing event. And Dr. Perez says the health consequences of pregnancy aren't just physical. We already know that pregnancy and the perinatal period, both during pregnancy and postpartum, are you know high-risk times for mental health conditions. Postpartum depression and anxiety and perinatal mean during pregnancy, depression and anxiety are very, very common. Conservative estimates are one in seven. And I would say it's probably even higher than that in my experience because it's something that goes undiagnosed. Compound upon that, the fact that many pregnancies of people who maybe had intended to get an abortion and weren't able to access it for many reasons, I think that really compounds those mental health challenges. There were certainly reasons that person would have chosen an abortion or tried to choose or consider an abortion that may have been physical, financial, social, et cetera. And so the really the mental health aspect of it is really big. Abortion is absolutely vital to women having the ability to live their lives, parent, and dictate their own bodily health and autonomy. And without that, we are left with economic, financial, social, and health issues for women lacking a choice in their reproductive life, which is their whole life. That brings us to the other thing we wanted to talk about, how access to abortion affects our earning power and our finances. For this, we're going back to Caitlin Myers, the economics professor from Middlebury you heard from earlier. We first asked Myers to just walk us through the costs of pregnancy and potentially becoming a parent. And it turns out that wasn't as straightforward as we thought. I don't think there's one answer to that question. There's the financial cost, right? The cost of healthcare, the cost of time off work that might be incurred, the cost of preparing for the arrival of the baby. Then there are the cost of parenthood. 
the costs of parenthood look very different for men and women. And in fact, parenthood is one of the primary factors that you have to consider when trying to explain the gender wage gap, because men and women's earnings tend to trend fairly similarly up until the point at which they become parents. And then women's earnings really plummet. They experience about a one third reduction in earnings. It's a shock that's fairly permanent over their lifetimes. Myers told us not only are the costs of both pregnancy and parenthood large and tend to fall on women, but the U.S. isn't doing much to lower those costs. The U.S. is one of the only developed countries that does not have any sort of federal paid leave policy. The vast majority of U.S. workers do not have access to any formal paid parental leave of any sort through their employer or through a policy. And so for a lot of American women who are facing motherhood, they're looking at an economy that generally doesn't do much to support them. The U.S. economy is is hard on American parents. To see an example of how access to abortion and family planning can meaningfully change a woman's life financially, Myers told us, let's go back to when Roe v. Wade became the law of the land. What we learned from the Roe era was that the availability of legal abortion was a major factor in determining whether a young woman experiencing an unintended pregnancy entered college, completed college, continued with a professional career, wasn't poor as an adult. We haven't had that level of shock to test the effects of in 50 years. That could change soon. What we do have is a host of convergent evidence that the ability to determine when and under what circumstances to become a mother is of primary importance to women as they plan their educations and their lives. Simply put, Access to abortion meant women could stay in school, continue their careers, increase their wealth, and decrease their financial stress. Myers also told us about what happens in the reverse situation, where women have limited or no access to abortion. We also have some evidence coming from a study called the Turnaway Study. Essentially, what that study did was say, let's look at women who are approaching abortion providers, and they are fairly late in a pregnancy to be seeking an abortion, certainly later than most women are seeking abortions. And when they get there, some of them are just under the gestational age threshold and they're provided the abortion that they want. And some of them are just past it and they're turned away. And the researchers matched these women to their credit reports. So this isn't like their self-report of what happened. They actually can see on their credit reports what happens to them. And Up until that pivotal moment in their lives, the financial circumstances of these women in both of these groups, they're all trending pretty similarly. And then at the moment this event occurs, they're either able to obtain the abortion or they're turned away. There's a divergence. And the women who are turned away experience a deterioration of their financial circumstances and an increase in bankruptcies. So that study shows that being denied an abortion at any point could have a serious impact on the rest of someone's financial future. And with the Supreme Court possibly paving the way for states to ban abortion outright, Meyer says it's likely people could be dealing with a totally different challenge, traveling long distances. Often poor and low-income mothers who are experiencing pregnancies that they do not wish to continue, they will, many, in many cases, not be able to reach an abortion provider. We estimate that about a third of them won't be able to reach an abortion provider from these areas that are affected. 
it's women with fewer resources who have always been the women who've been impacted by the availability of abortion. And they are the women who also are the most financially vulnerable. I became a single mother when my, my first husband died in a car accident and our two children were two and four. And I got a car insurance payout and I used it to hire a nanny. You know, I, I think had I not had that money, I don't know how I would have continued my professional career. And most single mothers don't have that money. And I'm so frustrated by these anecdotes that ignore the class component to motherhood. After hearing all of that, it's hard not to feel confused or frustrated by the idea that access to abortion, which has such a major impact on the health and financial well-being of women, is being left up to nine Supreme Court justices. Here's Dr. Perez again. It is really, really challenging and disheartening and makes me extremely worried for the health of my patients. It's so difficult because I feel like all of these issues are just such a lack of empathy. They're a lack of empathy for what families in the U.S. go through, for what pregnant people go through. There's a lot of stigma attached to abortion, even more stigma than there is attached to pregnancy loss, like miscarriage. A lot of people who may have been in these situations and gone through them may not share it. So these situations are a lot more common than other people realize because it's not talked about all the time. I think even just saying the word abortion is really challenging for some people. And I think that one of the things that can make that so much easier is just to start to say the word. When you bring up issues, use the word abortion. Surveys show that actually most of the country, I think over 65%, thinks abortion should be legal and accessible. So we've gotten to this point in our country where the conversation just is so hard to have and there are these completely false narratives around what it means. And we really need to partner with each other to make sure we apply our own healthcare decisions to our own lives, but protect access to healthcare for other people. Hey, Skim This listeners. I'm Bridget Armstrong, and I want to make sure you know about another podcast that I host that you should absolutely hit follow on. It's called Pop Culture with the Skim. Every Tuesday, we go deep on a culture story you need to know about. You can get all caught up on the details you missed, but you can also get the wider context. Like why it's a big deal that Meghan Markle won her lawsuit against a British tabloid. Or what's going to happen now that Britney's finally free. Next week, we're talking about dating reality shows. The Bachelorette just made history. All four finalists are people of color. We talk about what dating reality gets right and wrong about our attitudes towards marriage and partnership. You can find Pop Cultured with The Skim right here where you're listening to Skim This. Catch you Tuesday. One of the biggest art fairs in the U.S. has just wrapped up. It's called Art Basel, and it takes place every December in Miami. And while we aren't exactly in the market for some high-priced art ourselves, we were curious how this year's fair went, particularly because of one kind of digital art that's gotten a lot of attention recently. NFTs are the talking point of the fair this year. That's Anna Brady, the art market editor of The Art Newspaper. As a reminder, NFTs are like totally unique digital baseball cards. 
An NFT can basically be anything digital, from a tweet to a music album, a web page, a meme, and the list goes on. You'll never physically own an NFT, but you do get bragging rights. Brady told us the hype around NFTs started back in the spring. They suddenly come into the mainstream art market, which really happened this March when Beeple sold an NFT through Christie's for $69.3 million. And it just kind of completely turned everything upside down. It's really been since then that the kind of mainstream art market has started to take it seriously and embrace this whole new art form. NFTs are unique for a few reasons. For one, records of who owns NFTs are stored on blockchain, the same thing that powers cryptocurrencies. And artists can also keep making money because they can continue to produce and sell copies of their NFTs, as opposed to, say, the Mona Lisa, where only the OG copy exists. We'll be honest, NFTs definitely confuse some people, including us and Brady at first. I think a lot of us are still quite perplexed by NFTs. I won't, I won't lie. I mean, there's so, so many press releases and so many stories about NFTs and various developments in that sphere coming in. And remember, a lot of people in this world are like art historians as well. We're not techie people as such. And so it's a lot of kind of getting your head around a whole new art form and a whole new value system as well. But it's definitely brought an energy and a sort of much needed energy when the sort of physical art world couldn't really happen still for a lot of this year. But now, one of the most prestigious art fairs in the world is starting to embrace this unconventional art form. And that's partly because Art Basel is located in Miami. It's a city that's recently attracted the tech community, thanks to the city's leadership going all in on bringing tech firms there. Even the city's mayor, Francis Suarez, has said he'll take his salary in Bitcoin. And he's been really sort of on a charm offensive to try and persuade a lot of kind of Silicon Valley set to relocate to Miami. So he has succeeded in some ways in, in attracting a kind of younger, wealthy tech community. Got it. So people who swap Silicon Valley for the beach are making NFTs a whole lot more popular. And NFTs represent a totally different direction for the art world, which has been pretty old school for a long time. That seems like a big shift, but we wanted to know how else has the art market changed recently? Brady told us fairs and galleries have taken a look in the mirror and realized they need to start showcasing more diverse artists. It's interesting, specifically with this fair, they have made quite a big attempt to broaden the diversity of, of their exhibitor base. First of all, they've, they've kind of decided that, that they're going to sort of loosen the entry requirements, which basically insisted that a gallery should have a physical premises somewhere. They have loosened that, which has allowed a much more diverse gallery base to come in. So they've got a few more Black-owned galleries, and they have also got, for instance, uh, quite a few more African galleries. If you're thinking fancy art parties don't exactly seem like the most inclusive environment, you're not the only one who's skeptical. But Brady says she's hoping these recent changes will open up other doors for more people to experience art and even own art in the future. These really big high-end fairs like our Basel Miami kind of thrive off this exclusivity, the fact that people quite like to be able to get in there they like to be seen there. So there is a bit of a tension almost between this embracing of the NFT community who like to see themselves as being very egalitarian and inclusive and this rarefied high-end art world. The art world has realized that it has to be more inclusive on certain levels. 
there's been a lot of self-examination going on by a lot of these art institutions and they've realized quite how incredibly white they've been and certainly in terms of exhibitor base you know it's not unusual to go to an art fair and for there not to be a single black owned gallery there so i think they've really been kind of looking at themselves and sort of looking more broadly geographically and in terms of the kind of background to these gallerists too and just to try and open their doors to them. Thanks for listening to Skim This. Today's episode was skimmed by me, Alex Carr, along with our associate producer, Kira Long. We had additional help this week from Sajin Coriellis. The senior producer of Skim This is Luke Vargas. Our senior audio engineer is Andrew Calloway and Graylin Brashear is our head of audio. Skim This will be back in your feed again next Thursday. Until then, check out The Skim's other podcasts. 9 to 5-ish is where we talk all things career with our founders, Carly and Danielle. And Pop Cultured is our weekly deep dive into the culture stories you can't stop thinking about. Follow 9 to 5-ish and Pop Cultured wherever you're already listening to us. This week's episode was also the last one with senior producer Luke Vargas leading the show. He's on to new and exciting things, and we're so happy for him. But we're really going to miss him, his sharp news mind, his edits, and his dad jokes. All you listeners may not have heard his voice all that often, but you definitely heard him in every show. To Luke, thank you. <laughs>